New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Here we are, gathered from afar, fleshing out necessity, wandering half-blind through achingly real dreamlands, playing hide-and-seek with what really matters. So small we are, flickering for the briefest of moments, meteoric tracings against the pure black of infinite space, and yet also so immeasurably vast are we, existing as more than we can possibly imagine. These are the words of our guest today, Dr. Robert Augustus Masters, and serve as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions. Robert Augustus Masters holds a doctorate in psychology and is an experienced psychotherapist, trainer of psychotherapists, and teacher of spiritual deepening. His integral, intuitive work blends the psychological and physical with the spiritual, emphasizing embodiment, authenticity, deep shadow work, emotional openness and literacy, and the development of relational maturity. He has authored many books, including Divine Dynamite, Entering Awakening's Heartland, Transformation Through Intimacy, The Journey Toward Mature Monogamy, Meeting the Dragon, Entering Our Suffering, Entering Our Pain, and Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. Join us for the next hour as we discover what really matters with our guest, Robert Augustus Masters. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Robert, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to have you here. So, what is spiritual bypassing? Spiritual bypassing means the use of spiritual practices or beliefs to avoid dealing with pain, unresolved wounds, developmental tasks. Very, very prevalent phenomenon. And it's whoever you find spirituality, spiritual practice, its shadow is lurking nearby, and that is spiritual bypassing. It's very common. Well, you you referred to an explosion of interest in in the mid nineteen sixties. Yes, uh, of interest in spirituality and and talk about that. I think at that point there was a huge influx of, of teachings from the East, and they were widely embraced, which was wonderful in a way. But a lot of the embrace was undiscriminating. The, the teachings were taken very literally. For example, when Buddhism taught that anger was an unwholesome emotion, many Westerners took that on to mean they should not be angry or express anger. And there was a lot of, that's where bypassing began in a certain way, in a lot of ways. But by turning away from that, big time. Uh, It's interesting you mentioned that not very often has it been named. Uh, And so talk about that. Well, why not? Well, it's a bit like we're in a culture where we're, 
pain tends to be avoided and we get overly attached to the solutions to our pain, whether they're sexual, narcotic, et cetera, et cetera. And we're so used to turning away from that. Of course, we would we would find the same desire when we enter the spiritual realms to use that domain to also avoid our pain and suffering. So the whole thing gets masked very easily. You said true spirituality was not a high, not a rush, not an altered state. Talk about that. I think for a lot of people, spirituality means a sense of, of finding immunity from suffering, getting high, feeling better. And I think what's important is to release spirituality and everything else, actually, from the obligation to make us feel better. Otherwise, we're going into it expecting to feel better and better and better, not going into it for the awakening that it can serve. And that's what a lot of spiritual bypassing is, people going for the big E, enlightenment, being high, uh, et cetera, et cetera, rather than doing the work that makes them a full human. And my concern around this whole area is that many people are, are marginalizing their, their personal dimensions, their humanity, in order to be more spiritual. What happened to you, Robert? What, 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 what pr produced you as a spiritual teacher? How did, you, how did that happen? How did that occur? A lot of suffering. And slowly but surely making good use of that suffering. And initially when I was uh, entering the spiritual realm, and I was psychotherapeutically inclined too, I was so enamored of the states I could get into, these exalted states, samadhis, satoris, and... It took me a while to realize no matter how high I went in those states, I was still the same insufferable person at the end of it. I was the same. I hadn't shifted. I just had more credentials in my spiritual resume. And what I learned, again, slowly but surely, was instead of trying to get rid of these qualities of myself that were deemed unspiritual or dark or negative, it made more sense to become intimate with them. So that became my path, become intimate with all that I was. And I began teaching that, living that more and more deeply, and I still am. So you have your ups and downs? Oh, yeah. yeah. But I don't mind the downs. The downs are, there's as much growth in the downs. You talked about authentic spirituality. What is authentic spirituality? I think authentic spirituality is spirituality where we are not losing touch with our humanity whatsoever. We're honoring the personal and the relational just as much as the, as the transcendent and the transpersonal. In other words, there's no, there's no separating out from life in order to be spiritual. And in that context, I see relationship itself as being a spiritual path, a profound spiritual path. That's what I'm living with my wife, Diane, where our intimacy becomes a crucible and sanctuary for our, our healing and awakening. And, and I've actually grown more through that than in all my previous times in, in psychotherapy, spiritual practice with different teachers. Because everything that's neurotic in me inevitably gets pulled to the surface through our intimacy. So relationship is a conscious crucible. Mm -hmm. The ashram of the 21st century, we call it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. The, uh, you used a Viktor Frankl quote, <clears throat> what gives light must endure burning. Talk about that. Well, we often think of... of Spirituality is this vast fire of liberation, and we tend to be so enamored of the light, we forget there's heat, too. And the heat has a purifying purpose. And I think when you're really doing deep spiritual practice, there's the openness of the light, that sense, sense of incredible expansiveness. There's also, here's all the things that are unhealed. I mean, here's the things that have not been illuminated. 
And to get to them, there has to be some kind of heat. And the fire, see, fire is heat and light. I love the metaphor. The heat is so important. You use the phrase metaphysical volume. Uh, it's a great <laughs> phrase. I love that. Talk about that. Well, that's when we use spiritual practices to sedate ourselves. We, we're, we're, for example, we're suffering, we're immature in certain ways, and instead of working with that sanely and skillfully, we rise above it, we get enamored of practices that allow us to kind of float above all the troubles. And it, and it is kind of Valium-like, and it is metaphysical. And it's, it's a certain point will come when that bubble has to be burst. But often it can take a lot of work to get through to someone that's enamored of that. I find it's almost as difficult as trying to get through to a fundamentalist, having to question their beliefs. If someone's really enamored of spiritual bypassing, they're not about to call it that. And they look upon people like us that would perhaps question it as somehow being more stuck, more limited, too boundaried. Talk about a lack of grounding and in-the-body experience. Mm. What do you mean by that, in-the-body experience? Being present. Being present to your breathing, your sensations, who you are. When you're walking, you feel your feet on the ground. And if you're doing spiritual practices, you're not using them to get away from anything. In fact, you're using them to become more intimate with all of those qualities. So there's a, so it's a sense of being in the body, and there's no glamorizing then of going out of the body. That spiritual bypassing distances us not only from our pain and difficult personal issues, just in a metaphysical limbo. Yeah, it leaves us kind of stuck because we're not really going further spiritually with it. The illusion is there that we're doing it, and we're also not evolving developmentally as humans. We're staying very stuck, so we're we're in limbo. It's kind of a kind of a an anesthetized bardo. We're just there's a stuckness, and it's kind of cozy, but it's I would call it's like uh, comfortably numb. And it's certainly a place one can hang out for a while, but if you really want to live, you've got to leave it. And why do you have to leave it? Mm, to experience life more fully. To realize that pain is not the problem. You know, if we, as I, have, I have a book with the subtitle that says, it's called Meeting the Dragon. The subtitle is Ending Our Suffering by Entering Our Pain. So I see suffering as the dramatization of pain, making a big story, big deal out of it. But pain is inevitable. We all have pain. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well 63. There's pains that don't go away very easily in my body. There's all kinds of pains, but I've learned to become better acquainted with them so they're not problematic to me. I should not show anger or I should be more loving. Um, That's such a hell of a pressure to put on oneself because I've never met anyone who doesn't have anger. I've even saw once a famous Buddhist teacher was supposed to have no anger. I saw him, he was in private with his assistant. He didn't see me. I saw him treating her really badly. I mean, it was, everyone has it. And what pain one has to be in to deny that it's there. The key is to make good use of it. So, for example, Diane and I will share anger very readily in our relationship. But it's clean anger. It's not aggressive. It's heated. But... We it, it, things move through very fast. Like I see anger as the guardian of our boundaries, and I see a lot of people who are caught in spiritual bypassing as having such poor boundaries. They cannot say a clear no. They are so overly attached to being nice and sweet, and got to look positive. And there's this addiction to being positive, and they're in a sense being negative about their negativity. When you say clean anger, what do you mean by clean anger? Well, clean anger to me means anger that is not shaming, 
not blaming, not aggressive. It can be heated. Like if I'm angry at you and it's clean, I can be quite fierce. And it would be heated, but it would not be aggressive. It would not be an attack. And in it, I would be vulnerable. I also would have some degree of heart, some degree of caring for you. So you could tell I wasn't just out to hurt you, but I'd be basically, you know, you'd be shaken up a little from it. And it leaves no residue of resentment. And if someone's really cleanly angry, their tears are close to the surface, they're vulnerable, and that type of anger serves a relationship. And it really bothers me, and I see so many teachings still uh, demonizing anger. Like in Buddhist uh, theology, a lot of it, anger is equated, totally equated with ill will, hostility, aggression. And it isn't that. It can be that. Like I see, uh, I see violence is not a result of anger, but it's an abuse of anger. The I that wants to be a somebody. What about the I that wants to be a somebody? Oh, that I is so spiritually ambitious. I mean, I think we all know that. I mean, I was younger. I was so spiritually ambitious. There was the, to the point where I was going to be present at my own funeral in a sense. I mean, there's this, there's this sense of this quality of self that wants to be so free, not have ego, and yet still be a somebody who's attained it all. And that, that I, I think, deserves to be seen clearly for what it is. And the art in my way of teaching is to relate to that quality of self. So you don't identify with it. You just see it with compassion. Oh, here's the Robert that has that ambition. Here's, here's the inner critic. Here's the Robert as a five-year-old. Here is all these qualities that constitute us, and they're all there to be related to. So what does the I have to do with the ego? I think identification with that is ego. Like I consider ego to be a cult of one. It's a necessary part of our development. But when we identify with it, we get lost in it. I'm speaking with Robert Augustus Masters. He's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. guest is Robert Augustus Masters. He's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. Robert, you were talking about ego, so let's go back to ego. Sure. Sure. I think the concept of ego is a very big problem in a lot of spiritual circles. It tends to be demonized as though somehow we have to get rid of it. And yet for me, the biggest ego trip I've ever seen is that of trying to get rid of ego. I mean, to me, what we really are our true beingness no longer, no more needs to get rid of ego than the sky needs to get rid of its clouds. It's just part of us. It's, it's an aspect of us, and we need it to develop uh, psychologically. The problem is, is when we identify with egoity and we get lost in its programs, 
and, and we get overly limited. At the same time, many people will confuse ego with individuality. Like you and I both have egos. We can identify with it or not, but we are also essential and unique. You're unique, I'm unique. And I think a lot of paths will tend to undermine the individuality each of us has in the name of a spirituality that is all, where we're all one. And to me, a true embrace of oneness does not separate us from our differences. So I don't see ego as a problem. I see as the problem is what do we do with ego? What do we do with our tendencies, our habits, our slippages, our neuroses? That's the real th thing that matters to me. The first step is to see it for what it is, not something to eradicate, but something to outgrow. Yes, exactly. Is that referring to ego? I think so. Yeah. Oh. It can refer to a lot of things. I mean, it's, when, when, we see that, when we see a certain quality like ego or our inner critic, once we see it, we can relate to it. When I relate to that quality in myself or teach another to do the same, then there's a sense of empowerment because no longer am I identified with my inner critic, for example. I can see that and not make it wrong and deal with it skillfully. There isn't any such thing as a negative emotion. That's a good statement. I like that. It's got just a, a sense. There's no such thing as a negative emotion. I can just hear the protest in different quarters. But to me, to put it simply, what there, what is negative is what we sometimes will do with an emotion. So anger to me is not a negative emotion. What we do with it is what matters. Fear is not a negative emotion either. It matters. What matters is what do we do with that emotion? We can actually use such so-called negative states, which aren't really negative, for, to further our growth. I mean, to become intimate with one's fear is a huge step. To not turn away from fear, to medicate it, to try and get away from it, to sit with the fear and realize in our heart of hearts, if we really want the treasure, we've got to face the dragon. Step by conscious step. And that's what we do in our psychotherapeutic slash spiritual work is to teach people how to do that in a very embodied, organic way, how to move closer to what they're afraid of. Not to, too fast, to go at a pace that works for them. And once they've done that, they're more whole. They're, they're no longer turning away from their fear or the frightened child inside them. And we work with many people who have been severely abused, and that's part of the work, is to teach them how to contact whatever was hurting them and hold it to their heart bring it to the heart rather than try and get rid of it or rise above it. So what is the format of, the, of, of, the, of this? How does it work? Is it in a circle? What, what? It's, it, it starts in a circle, but uh, the way I've worked for the last 30 years, I, I just don't use structure. So when we, I sit down with a group of people, they can be all strangers, introduce ourselves, everyone says why they're there. It's, it's kind of nervous at first. I'll often say, you know, I consider fear to be excitement and drag. And we joke a little bit, opens up. Then I'll work with someone who has a just, it's always someone who wants to do some work. They're upset, they're crying, they've got a relationship they're concerned about. And I will pull them in the middle and I'll work with them very quickly, gather their history, do some body work, and pretty soon they're wide open, they're grounded. The whole room is triggered by that in a good way. And within an hour or so, everyone is feeling, they're sharing, and the structure slowly emerges for the group. So, the reason I don't use structure is it keeps me fresh and creative and on my toes rather than hiding or operating from behind a preset methodology. And I, we actually train people to be therapists in this way. We call it intuitive, integral work. It's very integral. It includes all our dimensions, and it's very intuitive. Hardest thing I have to teach others usually is how to trust 
their intuition when it comes to the deep work. Because when someone's really in crisis and you try and follow a map to deal with them, it often isn't that successful. But when you trust your intuition in your heart, there's a sense of knowing what to do. And I've been doing this for a long time. I've seen how deeply it can work. I mean, there's stages to it. So how do you how do you develop that trust? Practice. Practice. And often when I am doing some work, some of the trainees will say, oh my God, I had the same intuition, but I didn't trust it. I thought maybe that's not right. And so they... It's not just that I'm special in that. Others don't trust theirs as much. Part of my gift is I've learned to trust mine so fully. It's not a blind trust. It's very conscious. So if I'm doing deep body work on a trauma victim, I don't have a map. My hands, my heart, my consciousness are all cooperating and are being guided by that person's needs and energies in the moment. It's very moment to moment. There's no time really to think. It's all intuition. And it's also... Uh, relies on its capacity to be spacious, which you can develop through different meditative practices. So hence, we teach people a lot about meditation as well as the psychotherapeutic work. So there's a feeling level. Oh, and we, yeah, I have a, a book coming out. I'm going to call you De Deepening Emotional Literacy. We find there's such emotional illiteracy in our culture, including a lot of spiritual circles where people don't know, for example, the difference between shame and guilt. They don't know the levels of fear, the types of anger we haven't been taught that. There was no emotional literacy 101 in our schooling system, no compassion 101. So we're basically teaching that to almost everyone we work with. And it's not mainly a cognitive teaching. It's very experiential. Use the phrase, let your heart soften. Oh, yeah, more and more. And I've learned that for myself too as I've gotten older and hopefully a little wiser as my heart's gotten softer. I can be very, very forceful and direct. And I've learned, especially through Diane's presence, let it soften. And when it softens, I find there's more room for all the different qualities that I am made up of. And when I'm working with people, the same thing. The softer I am, I still have my guts, I still have my spine, but the softness is crucial. Now, one can be over soft. I've done a lot of men's groups where the men tend to be too soft. They, get, they tend to lose their balls, so to speak, and they're trying so hard to be nice and accommodating and pleasant to the women in their lives. They lose a certain core masculinity. They get overly soft. But I still, I think, there's an essential softness we all need to embrace. So the difference between men and women, what do you see the difference is? That's a great question. I mean, we often spend time uh, deconstructing the differences people come in, come to us with that they've learned in other systems where they've gotten too rigidly aligned with this is what a man is, this is what a woman is, and they're, they're trapped in that, that kind of thinking. So we have to kind of break that down. But there are core differences. I mean, they're, but they're, they're not... We don't use the term like the masculine and the feminine, but we do see the differences. And we love having groups now where we have men and women in the groups together. Is such, such deep work can happen. But I see, I see men needing to soften more. I see a lot of women, we do women's groups, and we teach them how to access their full voice, their power, to stop assuming that being really powerful and forceful and direct is somehow not feminine. Many women have been taught that being really direct, oh, it's not very feminine. And we say, you know what? It's not feminine or masculine. It just means you're being direct. And for God's sake, we need that directness. Instead of beating around the bush or trying to use your sexuality, for example, as a way of getting some control, how about just speaking straight? 
And of course, a lot of men need to learn that too. But we see um, another difference I, I'm thinking of right now is when people feel a lot of shame, and shame is very prevalent in our culture, hugely prevalent. I see most men when they feel shame and don't want to deal with it, they convert it into aggression. They attack another person. They find fault with that other person's delivery way of being. So the heat is on that person, not them. Whereas I see most women, I'm being very general, of course, will turn that aggression, that shame-based aggression, back on themselves to beat themselves up. And in both cases, though, there's an, there's an avoidance of feeling shame directly. Use the phrase blind compassion. Is blind compassion. Blind compassion is compassion that that will not take a stand. Is addicted to being nice and sweet and loving and positive, and never, never, never will it show anger. And it's and it's reality. There's no such thing as fierce compassion. In other words, one has to always be very soft. And in the delivery, sometimes I think in, in real life situations, compassion needs to be fierce. There's times where we have to step into a situation and, and take a stand, like as an activist, a healthy activist, to say no to something, but without closing our heart. So we we hold fierce compassion as very high value in our teaching. You said uh, neurotic tolerance in Karen's robes rooted in the belief that we're all doing the best we can. Talk about that. That's such a prevalent belief. We hear so many people have had a horrendous abuse who will say, I know my parents are doing the best they could. And we'll say, you know what? That notion entraps you. It makes you not hold those who hurt you accountable because they were doing the best they could. So if I treated you badly right now, Michael, in some way, I wouldn't say, well, I'm doing the best I could given my conditioning and the hard drive I had to get here. I'd say, you know what? I'm accountable. I did that. I'm sorry. It wasn't the best I could do. But in blind compassion, we make that excuse for the other person so that we don't have to confront them. We're confrontation phobic. Trungpa used to call it idiot compassion, but I, I like blind compassion more because it's, it doesn't sound quite as harsh. I mean, 10 years ago, I would use idiot compassion. Now I go, I've softened a little, so now it's blind <laughs> compassion. <laughs> so, like, the difference between, like, um, a man is often its relationship with his mother. And women, it's a relationship with the father. Is that what, do you see that? I, I see it as more complex than that. I mean, we see it both ways. I mean, the relationship with, when I hear a client talk about how difficult it was with one parent, I can't wait to find out what the other parent was like, too, because they're both part of our conditioning. And often the one that was more quiet and more passive had just as big an impact. So if someone was being hurt badly by, say, a rough, violent father, the mother did nothing about it. The client may not be angry at the mother for a long time in the therapeutic process because the, vi the villain seems to be the father, but the mother was permitting it. It's all there, and they're both accountable. So what do you do? How do you deal with that? I, I have them express what they need to express fully in the therapeutic environment, um, body work, gestalt, whatever it takes. And no way do I have them go into what I would call forgiveness work until they're ready. Many people will push people into forgiveness work prematurely. We, we often feel like what's important is to get the darker, heavier feelings out in the open not to go and give them to that person directly, but to work them out. And then there's a sense of spaciousness where one can truly see what happened. And then the forgiveness starts to come in and we start to be liberated from that, that being caught in that pattern. 
Otherwise, we'll just end up, for example, picking partners who are very similar to the parent we had the most negative charge with. It just goes on and on and on. That often happens. It happens almost all the time. We often say to people, you didn't pick your partner. Your conditioning picked your partner. And you are now having a relationship not with him or her, but with his or her potential. And what a trap, because you could wait forever for that person to manifest the potential you want. I'm speaking with Robert Augustus Masters. He's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. And if you'd like to know more information about Robert's work, you can go to the website, robertmasters.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Robert Augustus Masters. He's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters, Learning to Recognize and Transform the Obstacles that Keep Us from Living Life Fully. Robert, one of the things you wrote about was that we shouldn't judge others. Of course, we do judge others. So what about judgment? What is that? What is, what, why don't we judge others? I think judgment is inherent into the having a mind. So when we... T- say to others, you shouldn't judge or we shouldn't judge at all. We're asking for the impossible. Because if we observe our mind with any clarity for a short time, we will see judgments passing through the mind. They can be positive judgments or negative ones, but they are judgments. So the key for me, again, is not should we judge or not. The key is what do we do with our judging? What do we do with our judgmental mind? Do we, do we let it run wild? Do we identify with it? Do we suppress it? Do we mine it for the gems that may be in it? Because sometimes a judgment, a judgment we're having of another person may have some accuracy to it. It may have something in it. It's not just this bad evaluation. So I think it's really important not to demonize our judgmentalness because we are judgmental creatures. You use the phrase fierce compassion. Mm. Talk about that phrase. It's a wonderful phrase, fierce compassion. That means compassion that has the groundedness the guts to take a stand. So someone's really hurting someone else you know, you intervene fiercely because you want to have a, a needed impact, but you also do it with compassion so that your, your actions will be relatively skillful. So I think it's really important to put them together and go, you know what? Compassion can have a fierce face. Wrathful compassion is not an oxymoron. It's a needed reality. So many of us are angry with no compassion. So many of us are compassionate and we have no ground. We have no spine. It's too weak. We're too nice. We're too sweet. So for us, real compassion has to have the capacity to at times be fierce. If Diane's bothered by me, I appreciate the fact that she'll step into me when I'm off somewhat. And when she does it, she has to be fierce often because I can be a little stubborn, a little thick. So when she steps in, she's doing it fiercely, but she's doing it with care. So I can tell she cares about me. She's loving me, but she's not wearing a loving face. Her face says, wake up, notice, stop. And it's very efficient. What about people in your, in your, uh, your circles, in your workshops, uh, 
they, how do they develop this fierce compassion? By getting in touch with their anger and by getting in touch with their boundaries or lack thereof. Many people we work with have very poor boundaries. Their boundaries were trashed or violated when they were very young. And they've often been drawn to different pathways as adults that also don't respect their boundedness and need for boundaries. So we're constantly teaching people how to recognize boundaries, develop them, and to back them up with healthy anger. We see anger as the guardian of boundaries. So they go together. So in a group setting, we'll see if someone has very weak boundaries and we work with them, as we work with them, they get their voice back and power. They'll stand up stand their ground and will show in a very clear way. The whole group can see it and that will inspire other people to also identify where they may have given away power. Because we want to give everyone the sense of being empowered. Otherwise they look to us, we have the power, we're the leaders. I want them to feel the sense of power so we're sharing the power in the group. So do do people come back? I mean, do people like, do they, does anyone get it right away and never come back or do they, do Sometimes. they all come back? Well, we've had to work very efficiently. For example, we've worked in Mexico twice this year, and we would have a, a total stranger come in the room, two translators with us. I have one hour to do everything. So I gather their history, do some body work, some emotional work, identify what the block is, the problems, help them integrate it, give some homework, wrap it up with a little meditation. You know, so there's 45, 50 minutes have gone by. And we found that the results are really good almost all the time. So I've had to learn to work very, very fast very fast. So um, people don't come back. Sometimes the other ones who have had more sev- severe difficulties who are in areas where we're staying longer will come back. Someone's had severe abuse. We're not going to get through everything in one session or two or three. It takes it takes more. As efficient and as effective as we are, someone who really needs to work deeply, we'll stay with them till it, until it's done, until they've integrated it and they're ready to move on. So you talked about healthy and unhealthy transcendence. Uh, you trace up, up, and away is is uh, um, matters for unhealthy uh, is a mantra for unhealthy transcendence. Yeah, yeah, and we see a lot of unhealthy transcendence. I don't think all transcendence is unhealthy, but I think most of it, in our experience, is people are trying to get beyond something before they've actually experienced it fully. And, and I think spiritual circles are, are, are rife with uh, premature transcendence. Uh, people may assume that they've achieved a level of spiritual maturity they haven't. Suddenly they're now a teacher. They're giving satsang. They've realized the non-dual nature of reality. They've had a moment of awakening, and now they're making spiritual real estate out of it, and they're a teacher. And they've bypassed so much. I think true transcendence means to go beyond something, but to include it as you do. And even beyond that, to become intimate with it. So if I, if I transcend, say, a me-centered stage of relationship, it doesn't mean it's gone for me. It means that I've gone beyond it, and yet I also include it in my being. I'm intimate with it. Going beyond all, excluding none, is healthy transcendence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's no exclusion. No exclusion. You know, in other words, uh, all the way, if we, when we embrace our oneness fully, if, if it's authentic, we're not turning away whatsoever from the broken many. We're still intimate with all of human suffering and pain. We're not trying to get away from it. In fact, we're more vulnerable to it. I think if you open spiritually authentically, you become more vulnerable, more raw. You feel more. And you're more compassionate. 
You have to face the dragon. Fully. Feel its breath. Look in its eyes. Get to know it. And when you become intimate with it, then then your very encounter with that dragon readies you to make wise use of the treasure. Otherwise, if you were suddenly given that treasure, you would not know what to do with it. You'd be like someone who wins a huge lottery and has no capacity to handle it skillfully at all. So the dragons are not adversaries. They're, uh, they're pr- part of our practice path. Dragon of ignorance, delusion, aggression, they're, they're all there. It's like Joe Campbell when he talked about following your bliss. He said the path of following your bliss leads down, leads down, 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 down mm. into the darkness, and you face your dragons. Down is where roots fly free, where seeds grow. I mean, seeds grow in the dark, and so do we. I think um, there's been an overemphasis on being up, 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 and up. And I think the the truth sense is to up, get up and away, up, up and away. And we want to get down. Then we start to go from going down or up to just being here and going. Our movement then is from here to a deeper here, now to a deeper now. We just get more and more present because we have no aversion to going down or going up. If you're really attached to going up, of course you'll keep going up. And some people get stuck and go, they go down too much and they get, they get lost in their emotions. They get lost in, in their psychological dramas. That's a problem too. Well, to, to explain that. Well, that means if, if one gets overly therapized, one could get so enamored of one's story, one's uh, personal history, that we, we get stuck there. And we don't look up and see the sky, the sky of being. So that's why I think spirituality and psychotherapy need to work together. And that's one of my deep passions is to, is to kind of do what I can to, to bring them together more and more. So people realize that truly deep psychotherapy is inherently spiritual. And true spirituality has to include the psychological dimensions that we are. It has to include our humanity. Talk about spiritual shortcuts, you know, got to run, busy day ahead. Uh, yeah. What's the spiritual, what is spiritual shortcuts? <laughs> Wanting to get there in a hurry. I remember one story I heard once that Dalai Lama was uh, at a city, in a big city, and some guy asked a question that went along the lines of, um, how, can I, how can I reach enlightenment more quickly? And from what I heard, the Dalai Lama sat there and he wept a little before he answered. And he wept because he said he felt sad that this person was in such pain, he wanted to get there in such a hurry. I mean, if you're on track, I think, and you're really on track, you know you're on track and there's no rush. There's no rush. I rushed a lot when I was in my 30s. Didn't get anywhere. I don't rush now, and I can feel that I'm on track. Even when I slip, I get back on track. I get off track, back on track. I feel I'm on track. And there's a sense there's no urgency now. There's no spiritual ambition left to me to reach some exalted state. It's just enough just to be here, like right now. Right now. Right now. This moment. Exactly. Right with you. Yeah. Yeah. Shadow work. It's so important. It's so important to do it deeply. I mean, some people will do it uh, intellectually only, identifying something, talking to that quality themselves. What we mean by it is, is facing what's very difficult and dark and deep in us. And just t- it's almost like taking a searchlight into the caves of one's being and moving carefully and having skilled guidance along the way. So it means the ultimate hero's journey. You're, you're, you're going into those d- deep zones, knowing that when you go there, you're gonna get dismembered in a sense, you're gonna probably lose identity, you're gonna suffer, you may lose the thread of remembrance that connects you to the surface, but you're still gonna make the journey because the Minotaur is awaiting for you. And at some point you go, my God, you look in the Minotaur's eyes and that's you looking back at you. 
but you can't get there. There's no shortcut to that. You have to make the, the journey. And it's like, I think that many, many of us want to get there. We, like we want to, oh. we see it and then we want to get there. You know, it's like, oh, I want it right now. Yeah, we want the benefits of a profound awakening without doing any of the work. Yes. That's the ultimate dream. And some people are selling that type of thing and people want to buy it. Like, God, I, want to, I can get it in a weekend. And if I don't, it's just because I don't believe correctly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. yeah. it takes me back to the, the, the old S weekends, you know? Yeah. Where, uh, did you get it? Did you get it? Yeah. I got it. I got it. <laughs> if you didn't get it, that's what you got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it was a double-edged sword. Sure was. Sure. Uh, um, pain, or as you said, or more precisely, the avoidance of pain. So what does that mean? Well, I think it's natural for us as humans when we feel pain is to want to avoid it, to get away from it. But I think as we mature, we realize that our real growth is when we don't avoid it anymore. We turn toward it. We turn towards the inevitable pains. And if we don't, we just, our life is on hold. We're spiritually bypassing. We're intellectually bypassing. We're kind of floating above what needs to be faced. And then in that, you see there's a resistance to pain. And to me, suffering means pain in a sense, multiplied by the resistance to pain. So the resistance to pain makes the pain worse. And, it, and drama keeps pain in the dark, in a sense. We just don't, we, we can't work with it as skillfully. If I remove the drama around my pain over a particular issue or something in my body that's going on, I'm just sitting with unpleasant sensation. I soften around it. And pretty soon, I'm okay with it being there. In a sense, I'm okay with not being okay. And there's a certain peace in being okay with not being okay. Okay, I'm sick today. What a drag. Damn it. But at the same time, make some room around it, and it's okay because I'm still here. Pain is a given. Suffering is optional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Magical thinking. What about magical thinking? Entirely appropriate in a five- or six-year-old in adults, far, far less so. I mean, I think we're under a lot of stress as adults, so we will revert to magical thinking. Even though, even the smartest of us, like Joan Didion had wrote a book a while ago around that. Let's come back to this. Yes. I'm speaking with Robert Augustus Masters, and he's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. If you'd like more information, you can go to the website, robertmasters.com, or New Dimensions. You get there through New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Robert Augustus Masters, he's the author of Spiritual Bypassing. 
And Robert, you were you were talking about magical thinking, so let's continue with that. Yes, I was saying that magical thinking is entirely appropriate in a five or six year old, this way the mind operates then. But in adults, it's not so appropriate unless you're using it just for creative ventures. Um, but I was also saying that often when we're under extreme stress, we may revert to that as adults. Even the wisest of us, if we're under enough strain, we may think magically. We may want, in other words, to think that if we think a certain way, something extraordinary is going to happen. And many people who are in the grosser um, stages of spiritual bypassing, say in the New Age communities, employ magical thinking as though it's entirely rational. And there's a sense, okay, if I believe hard enough that I will have money, I will have that. And if someone doesn't have money, it must be because their, their beliefs aren't correct. And of course, we know that's absurd. You can think of situations where someone's starving in an African desert and ch her child's almost dying. What? She has no money. She can certainly use it. And if she thinks differently, it's going to manifest. We can cut through it. We can see through it. But it's a very seductive way of reasoning. And it's also very me-centered. It's very narcissistic. In other words, if the bus is late, I'm if I'm in magical thinking, I may think, what's this say about me? What does this say about my day? What are the signs here? And it's all about me. And we we're overlooking the fact maybe the bus is just plain late. There's all kinds of other people involved. So it's a very um, seductive way of using the mind. And we will slip into it when we're under stress or if we're caught up in, in certain ways of believing that our way we believe things creates reality totally and simply. Mentioned signs, and you say it rely, and relies heavily on signs. And uh, I'm just saying, you were you were watching a DVD with your wife Diane, and it turned out to be the the movie Sleepless in Seattle, which you had never seen before. Yeah. And of course, it was full of quote coincidences. Uh huh. Uh, but uh, it could have been synchronicity too. That's what's interesting because synchronicity, I think, does exist. I mean, we can if we're really messed up, we may see patterns where there are no patterns. We may assume because you have a, sitting in a red chair and there's a red pen to my left, there's something highly significant about that. But if we go beyond that, there are incidences where things are, there's synchronicity. For example, I've had many times where I was tired and I needed a break and my clients that afternoon would cancel their sessions. And it's happened so many times, it's not coincidence. So we, I see it. I see a true synchronicity. You know, where things, everything's intertwined and sometimes things surface like that. So I, I know it exists, but it's easy to conflate it with magical thinking's agendas. So the irony is that we leave magical thinking in the, in his great phrase, in the sandboxes of our mind. Mm. Uh, so what is that? What is that about sandboxes of our mind? Well, a place where we can play. Like I, when I write, I mean, I write books about healing and awakening, but I also, I also have a poetic inclination. So when I'm working with language, I often will go into it, a certain type of what a psychologist would call thought disorder, magical thinking. So I want to break down the usual ways of using language. I know I'm doing it. And it's, it's very playful. It's innocent. Hence the sandboxes. So signs, like what signs do you look for? What are the signs for you? I look for signs, um, I don't know, I'm not sure how to answer that. I don't so much look for them, but I recognize them. Um, if someone's in a group and there's a certain gesture they make, maybe that will tell me far more than I could read rationally from that gesture. So it's not superstitious. It's to do with our intuitive sense of how it all operates. It also could be outside in nature as well. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can see a bird or a, oh, yeah. a raptor. 
or it's like Diane seen a hummingbird in front of her face many years ago. And out of that came an incredibly beautiful chant. She does original contemporary chants. It was a chant about the hummingbird of joy, sipping your nectar, O Lord. This beautiful chant that came out of this encounter with this beautiful little bird that happened to be right in front of her face for an extraordinarily long time. I had a client, um, I had a doctor once come to me for therapy many years ago, and he said, you know, I got to tell you a story I'm really uh, afraid to share. Uh, I had a native client of mine, patient, die. And after he died, I felt something in the room. I turned around. It was 10 in the morning, bright, sunny day. And there was a full-sized owl on the windowsill. I said, what was that? He said, it just gave me the creeps. It made me shiver. And of course, I explained to him what the native view of owls were in that culture and what a sign for him. I mean, yes. it did jolt to him. He was startled and he could not get over it because yes. it completely blew apart his rational world view. Yes. So you talked about many spiritual teachers don't include psychotherapy with the notable exception of uh, many in the Buddhist tradition. Um, so talk about that. Yeah, I think many spiritualists make the error of assuming that if a student is not progressing very well, the, the only answer is to have them do more spiritual practices or do them differently, as if spirituality can work through everything. And what we've seen again and again and again is there's some things that spiritual practice doesn't touch. The psychological works, psychotherapeutic work can deal with very effectively. So we, again, really want to see those two fields brought together, spirituality and psychotherapy. So you, you mentioned that real f real freedom not found in escaping limitation, but through limitation. Yes, many of us will assume, I think, well, I want to be free, and free means not having limitations or boundaries. I think it's the opposite. The real freedom is found through limitation, and the essence of that is a really good relationship. You are limited to one partner, you're monogamous, and yet if you work at it properly, open deeply, deeply, you will find incredible freedom through that apparent limitation of one person. So we teach that, freedom through limitation. You, you had the phrase team of allies, integrative psychotherapy and spiritual practice. Team of allies. I, I want them to be allies more. I think, I think there's a few places they are becoming allies, but there's still this rift between them. And I think I like the word psycho-spiritual a lot without a hyphen. Like the, they work together, the psychological, the spiritual, the body, all of it. That's what we call our work integral because it includes everything, social, emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual. And it's important they work together. Making wise use of anger. Very important. And that begins with being aware of how we make unwise use of anger. Yes. Like when we convert it into aggression or hostility where we get passive aggressive or we, or we just put a smile on it all the time and try and get away from it. Making wise use of it means expressing it skillfully and fully at times, knowing how to circulate it through the body, how to hold it in meditative equipoise, just being present with it. And again, having the capacity to express it directly when needed. It's about anger in, anger out. Those are conventional ways of expressing anger. Anger in means to repress it, be nice, be smiling, be accommodating, be kind of flattened emotionally. Anger out means to cut loose with it for better or for worse. It could be ranged from venting in the worst possible way to just simply being angry in a very clean way. You talked about uh, mindfully held anger. 
mindfully held anger is uh, very Buddhist in a very good way. It means to let anger circulate through your system without acting it out whatsoever. Not repressing it so much, but just observing it. Not so easy to do, but it can be done. You, but you want to make sure you're sitting with your anger at those times, not sitting on it. And, and the fourth category is I call heart anger, which is is rare, but it's quite possible. That's when anger is expressed with caring, with compassion. It's, it, it, it manifests as fierce compassion, wrathful compassion. It means that if I'm pissed off at you, I don't lose touch with the fact that I care about you as I'm getting angry. And it can be done, but it takes practice. Use the phrase, anger is moral fire. Yeah, there's a sense in anger of, of, some, of, of wanting to make things right. I mean, anger, I think the fire of anger was essential in the civil rights movement, for example. It's so important to have that moral fire and to use it skillfully. But it is a fire. Anger is very fiery. The blood flows through the system. We heat up, we turn red, and there's a moral dimension to it, too, for better or for worse. So, aspire to something far more life-giving, clean, conscious anger. Yes, exactly. Anger that does not leave any smoldering, lingering trace of resentment, that doesn't shame, doesn't blame, and is there to deepen relationship, not to break it. In other words, it's being used to break through barriers to intimacy. Boundaries make freedom possible. Exactly. I mean, just like I remember Robert Frost had a poem where he said, good fences make good neighbors. I think good boundaries make for healthy relationships. A good boundary is, flex is flexible, it's permeable, but it does exist. It's, it's like this, this psychophysical membrane that we have that we need, to, we need to enforce with anger when necessary. But if we don't have boundaries, we're not contained. And we're not, we cannot differentiate. I mean, part of evolution is to differentiate as as we grow, as we move on, and boundaries are an essential part of life. So when I hear of spiritual paths that talk about, you know, let's get rid of our boundaries, let's be free, let's just be with whoever we want to be, what I hear in that is a lot of pain, a lot of unresolved childhood stuff. Don't take it personally. Yeah, that's a tricky one because there's, there's there's a wisdom to that, but but that can be again that can be misused. Some people will use it to the point where they use that that idea to distance themselves from what they're feeling. So they their encounters with the other person are rendered kind of shallow. This is a piece from the end at the end of the book that I'd like you to to uh, share with our audience. Authentic spiritual life is the opportunity of a lifetime. It is a constant dying into a deeper life. Emerging from our own ashes becomes no big deal. It's just the way things are. Here, the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys intermingle in unparalleled song. We, their infinite notes, and the music that goes on in the one moment that is all moments. Robert, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Robert Augustus Masters. He's the author of Spiritual Bypassing, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters, published in paperback by North Atlantic Books. And if you'd like more information about Robert's work, you can go to the website, robertmasters.com, or you can go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3392. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.